0: Good afternoon and welcome to the CIO's Interoperability Agenda, Creating an Ecosystem of Frictionless Care, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Philips. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We're looking forward to audience participation. You can use the Q&A box to send in your questions or comments at any time, and we'll take them later in the program. We're also going to do a little poll that we uh, really enjoy here, uh, get your opinion on a particular issue, and then have our panelists guess at the results. Uh, Just so you can get your screen into a nice mode here, first click in the top center, get it in side-by-side mode. Then you can adjust the divider so you get the video boxes and the slides the size you want. And it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. And so you see how we're going to spend our time today. First, we're going to go 35 to 40 minutes with our main panel discussion featuring Dr. Stan Huff, CMIO, at Intermountain Healthcare, Dave Castle, Executive Director with Care Quality, and Greg Fulton, Policy Lead, Chief Medical Office with Phillips. So let's jump right in to our discussion. Um, Stan, let's start with you. Can you give us an overview of Inter- Intermountain and your role?
1: So Intermountain is a, a not-for-profit charitable uh, healthcare provider organization with 22 or 23 hospitals uh, centered in Salt Lake City, but now spreading out um, about Forty thousand employees, and I'm the chief medical informatics officer.
0: Very good, thank you, Dave.
2: Sure. So uh, I, I head up the Care Quality Initiative uh, in health IT interoperability. Care Quality is a, a nonprofit uh, serving the public interest. We're not not a trade association or or another uh, any other type there. Uh, and and really, our specific role within health IT interoperability is to take the work that's been done by lots of different uh, networks and platforms and and HIEs and vendor-based initiatives and and sort of stitch them all together. And you can think of it as being not unlike what's done in the telecom industry by uh, cell phone networks, where you as a consumer, the pick up a particular service provider, whether that's uh, an AT&T or Verizon or what have you, but then you simply make phone calls and it just works. Uh, but it works because behind the scenes, there is a framework for how those different folks all uh, connect with one another. Uh, and care equality plays uh, a similar role in health IT interoperability, connecting your your uh, uh, EPIC networks to Commonwealth, to the eHealth exchange, to uh, uh, regional
3: and state HIEs and so forth. Very good, Dave. Thank you. Uh, Greg? Hi, everyone. Greg Fulton here with Phillips. Um, in context for today's topic, I will describe Phillips as a parallel track model approach to healthcare delivery in two ways, hospital to home and connected care. So meaning in-hospital imaging, centralized ICU, sometimes called EICU, tele-ICU, precision diagnostics, image-guided therapy. Some could be outpatient at hospital setting. Then you move over to a population health management platform uh, that we also have that can integrate with EHRs and a health system. There come your analytics. There comes your care gaps. There comes your data aggregation. Move into the home, devices, remote patient monitoring, uh, devices like that. So that's the connected care of getting that data within and without is really the approach that, that Phillips is 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 going right now more specific to today's topic happy to say in front of dave castle Phillips is a member of care equality look working on an, um, an imaging pilot there we are also a member of the commonwealth health alliance and we've recently tested onto the eHealth exchange so investing in all of those networks and, and governance attitudes there uh, my role briefly Uh, I do lead policy around interoperability. I spend a lot of time with our industry relationships as well as that with ONC, uh, which has authored this uh, information blocking regulation, as well as CMS as they continue to move up some of their interoperability payment models and this latest um, interoperability and patient access rule. So I do our comment letters and and try to engage with these agencies, things like that, and and I'll, I'll stop there.
0: Thank you, Greg. All right, Stan, we're gonna start with you. Let me get through this question. What is the potential impact of the latest CMS and ONC interoperability regs on healthcare innovation and transformation, especially in light of the COVID-19 situation? What are some challenges you've been experiencing trying to comply with these new regulations?
1: So, we're still working on it. Uh, (laughs) first, first thing is in light of COVID-19, what, what I can say is we're, things are changing a little bit, but I would say for the last six months or more, the top IT activities have all been COVID related, uh, you know, support for our remote, uh, specimen collection areas, uh, reporting activities, uh, reporting activities by the way i mean one of the we're talking about interoperability here and it's it's so disappointing uh in terms of public health reporting so intermountain uh last time i checked which has been maybe a month ago so it might changed a little bit we had 13 different places where we needed to report you know covid activities uh either testing results or how many hospital beds were occupied or how many respirators we had all. And, you know, we have the local health department, the Utah state health department. Um, Then there's the vice vice president Pence's uh, COVID tracking activities, uh, the CDC, uh, you know, and, the way that the data is set is different in all of those environments. The only ones that are trying to use anything standard are the state health department and the CDC and the other things are, uh, you know, all the way from spreadsheets to emails. Uh, <laughs> we are not interoperable in any sense. And, you know, I, I hear everybody saying now we need to work on interoperability so that, you know, whether it's the next phase of COVID or it's the next phase of, uh, or or another pandemic, we're ready and we can share data. But I I fear that it's gonna be like the guy with the leaky roof. And they said, well, why is your roof leaking? He said, well, you know, when it's raining, uh, you know, I don't want to get up there on the roof. And when it's not raining, my my roof doesn't leak. You know, uh, I think they'll forget they'll forget that we're not interoperable uh, and we really need to invest in it and we need to be uh, thoughtful about it. Uh, but I worry we're going to have a short memory. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit. It, complying with the regulations, actually, uh, I'm excited about the regulations in, in the fact that it, you know, it makes requirements that the that the systems need to be more open and we need to allow Patients and providers uh, true access to the information they need to take good care of patients. Uh, we're we're working right now that it's it's fairly clear and, and we're we've done a lot of preparation for uh, the sort the regulations that apply to the to our uh, our insurance group, uh, Select Health. We're working still on you know, what it means for clinical care and how, uh, how we access and how, how, we could, how we could allow a, a patient to use an application that they want to go ahead and attach to fire services. Uh, you know, we're, the technical part of attaching is one thing, but then sort of the policy and the process work, you know, how, does, how do we, you, you know, how do we know somebody wants to connect and how do we give them permission to connect uh how do we track it and make sure that it's not going to uh cause performance problems with the, with the organization etc and and we're working through that just it it's surprising to me that you know there's <laughs> that you look at the, the publication and there's not like a bullet list that says you need to do this you need to do this and this is the date when you need to have it done uh you know There's 1,200 pages of stuff there. It's kind of hard sometimes to see what all of the parts are. Uh, So that's maybe one of the challenges, is just making sure we know exactly what it is we need to do.
0: Are are you seeing challenges in, uh, you know, you're supposed to share data, right, and you're supposed to make data available to patients. Um, I think you touched on this, the idea that you have to make sure you know where it's going. Um, and you have to make sure you're authorized to release it to any third parties that the patient may want it to go to. you may make a mistake there. That's a huge problem, right? You've exposed their data. You've sent it to the wrong place. So you're trying to, you're trying to do the right thing, but you better get it right.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, we're not doing it yet. So, you know, but, but that's exactly what we're worried about,
3: uh, Yeah. Okay, Greg, your thoughts? Yeah, to Stan's point, I'll throw up a flare that right now health systems are looking at a timeline deadline of November 2nd as to when patients can approach and can uh, request this data, this data set known as USCDI. Um, Agree, Stan, also, if you look at the CMS and the ONC regulations, where are they aligned? patient access, CMS around payer data, claims, ONC, clinical, same fire standards, same as as to patient apps and API third parties. You probably well know this, but keep in mind too, once that data leaves your system, goes into the patient's app, it's no longer HIPAA compliant or no longer covered by HIPAA when that data leaves, leaves you. It is worth some outreach to the patient's um, there is some authentication you can help them with or some outreach to patients by saying, well, does your app have a privacy protocol? Do they attest to it? So I think there are some things you can do to, to reach out to patients to kind of get them to where you're both comfortable with, with where that data is going in, in, in terms of third-party apps and things like that. We'll also agree with Stan. I truly believe, as, as I think you're implying, that, if these regulations and rules go well, that's great. Could then interoperability really become part of an important aspect of public health? Could interoperability become a public trust? Shouldn't it be baked in? Shouldn't we expect it? I think that's where we really need to go. And I think innovation, you mentioned innovation in this, in, in this question. I think the innovation is around collaboration. Innovation is around willingness. Innovation is around willpower. You know, we stood up some things in COVID that were stood up fairly quickly and and in scale in Brazil, Netherlands, U.S., uh, around monitoring and patient tracking and things like that. It, the technology is there. I think, again, Stan, you're right. It's it's the willingness or the collaboration um, to really overcome some of the technical specs or, or some hesitations there.
0: Greg, you mentioned uh, patient outreach and education. Um, I think you're you're talking about trying to help them understand the implications of releasing data to third parties and exposing themselves. But you also made the point that once, you know, let's talk about health systems. So once the health system sends the data to a place it's been authorized to send the data to, and and that's all done correctly, it's out of their hands. So you're almost talking about an additional service almost to, to do the right thing, even though health systems aren't responsible once it goes wherever it's it it's been you know they've authorized it to go you're saying it's kind of the right thing to do to help make sure your patients understand some of this stuff
3: yeah and in terms of hey if you want to come and request your data and you have an app, does it have a privacy protocol? Can it authenticate that it does? Can it attest to it? There is some language within the within the regulation that speaks to some things like that providers can do. I think that's going to help with patient retention. If you look yeah. at the if you look at the run-up to the regulation, I mean CMS and ONC officials were saying publicly out loud on stage, well, you know, health systems are the data hoarders, they don't want to lose patients. You know, that's why we need this regulation. Fair or not? Real or not, that was being stated. So I think it is a way to really get your patients comfortable with what they can do because you don't want to be accused of being an information blocker. You don't want to have a complaint in the ONC portal. You don't want to have to deal with that. And really patients understanding the process and how you can sort of guide them can maybe help help avoid some of that.
0: Dave, lots of stuff there. Take it, Take it wherever you want. Lots of stuff to react to the main question, whatever you want to go.
2: Yeah, uh, there is certainly a lot to react to there. I think just to, to build a little bit off of what Greg just said, one of the uh, the areas of work that I've been involved in, not directly related to care quality, uh, has been the work of the Karen Alliance, and specifically in developing uh, what they call their their code of conduct. Uh, so as you're you're looking at those uh, patient education efforts, the Karen Alliance, it's C A R I N. Uh, the Karen Alliance Code of Conduct uh, is something that you could uh, potentially encourage patients to look for uh, in terms of of uh, apps act- actually attesting to it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, go ahead. Oh yeah, no, sorry. Go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say just your thoughts around obligation, let's say requirement, versus trying to go beyond the requirement. Right? You may not have to do this type of education, but it could save you in the long run because. Even though you did the right thing as a health system, if something goes wrong with that third party, the perception might be that it would somehow on you as well. So we're trying to avoid all that. Does that make sense? Am I seeing this right?
2: Yeah, I, I think you are. It certainly makes sense to me that, that you, you know, obviously you, you, there, there's only so much that you you necessarily should invest in this. There's a balance in everything, but at the same time, Providing your patients with some guidance uh, you know regardless of what you're required to do, it is likely going to be uh, beneficial for you in the long run in a number of mm-hmm. areas and you know both both some, some direct uh, savings, if you will in in reducing the risk of of information blocking claims and lawsuits if something goes wrong whether, whether or not you can actually you know the, the lawsuit ends up sticking, you still would, would potentially have to deal with it in in these sort of worst case scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 mention of information blocking though is is interesting because as I think about the rules as a whole, I think that's the one where there's there's going to be a significant impact uh, and and there's probably the most uncertainty at least in my view on exactly what that impact is going to be. We've talked here about patient apps uh, and and they certainly are one of those those parties that is often referenced in in the information blocking context but for me, I, I'm maybe I'm just have a, a cynical viewpoint, but I'm I'm expecting the rule to be weaponized. Uh, I think it's going to happen, and and a lot of the impact and whether it ends up being positive or negative, I think is going to come out of who is actually making accusations and against whom? Is it going to be the app developers accusing vendors or accusing providers? Uh, Could it be payers coming out of the woodwork and accusing providers of of making it difficult for them to get information? Uh, Are are vendors gonna just uh, go into a war of attrition with one another? Uh, Exactly how that all plays out uh, will will really have an impact obviously. And and as we look at, at, in general, uh, what I see is a, a sort of gradual restructuring of, of the, the healthcare industry to, uh, to work in a new IT context, who wins, if you will, in, in uh, some of that warfare uh, is, is gonna have an impact on, on what that emerging new, new system looks like.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, stopping short of telling or recommending an app to a patient, maybe a health system compiles. What apps are we seeing? What are working best? Let's sort of say that so the patient doesn't get lost in in, in this process. And yeah, great.
0: All right. Very good. Let's go to our next uh, question. Greg, we're going to start with you. What are some of the opportunities these new regulations present that you are most excited about? For example, will they enable us to better utilize technologies such as AI and predictive analytics to improve the patient care journey or clinical information flows?
3: Yeah, I hope, I expect that everything will go well with fire and API on, on an actual technical basis or, or, or a data flow. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, I think that can lend itself to more patient-generated health data, more social determinants of health data getting in and out of the system, so that, that could be good. I, I would love to see some value-based care models uh, come out of this, if that is so. But to, to try and stick to the question here, It may not sound wildly exciting or innovative, but we did support um, ADT coming out of a CMS rule. This is admit, discharge, and transfer for hospitals, to start noting that. I think that is going to help the patient care journey. If we know where the patient is, you've got COVID patients, you've got fires out west, you've got hurricanes coming up in the southeast. Where is my patient? I think ADT is going to help, and we did support that. for for hospitals to do so. That was within the CMS rule. Um, I won't say it gets totally overlooked, but sometimes gets overlooked in in, in the data to patients aspect of it. CMS did put ADT into that CMS rule. One final little thought on AI. Um, Again, not a blockbuster, but CMS in its physician fee schedule proposed rule for 2021, they have proposed their first ever reimbursement CPT code payment for, for AI. And, and that's a real start. It's a total automated diagnostic. Uh, it's for retinopathy, di- diabetes patients, really a good start there. So you're, you're seeing some movement, you know, uh, across the board here, but I think ADT is going to be helpful. Um, somewhat controversial, but I, I think ADT will be helpful in, in, in helping us round up patients or, or really do that care journey as you put it.
0: Very good, Stan. You know, I'm, I'm hoping
1: for big changes, and not not necessarily fast changes, but but a dramatic change. Uh, I'm really hoping this is the start of uh, an opportunity for those <clears throat> who who want to uh, to get to, to semantic interoperability, uh, and and probably my, my definition for that is that. We can develop a third-party marketplace where applications can be created and they can be distributed and used any place where the standards are um, in place, uh, where people are compliant to the standards. (laughs) And it's the idea that, you know, you could, you could have a a group working on you know, the best uh, occult sepsis detection algorithm for the emergency room or uh, the best application for uh, monitoring and tracking and managing heart failure, uh, et cetera. And those things uh, wouldn't need to be modified to know whether I was connected to Epic or Cerner or Allscripts or NextGen or whoever, uh, so that it's a true open market uh, and we would see innovation and creation of things that we don't even think of now in the same way that we see that with, with you know, the internet today, uh, you know, just things popping up that would be as innovative as Uber was when it first came out uh, and, and other kinds of things. And it, it moves those things to the cloud. You can imagine now that those applications uh, you, could, you could have one copy, and anybody in the world could could access that and use it in an integrated way in the patient workflow, and it could be uh, – you, you hope it would be part of a, uh, a cycle of, of a learning health system, if you will, so that people are watching the outcomes from those algorithms and constantly improving them, and improving them means that everybody in the world can take advantage of that improvement and uh and so in my in my fantasies and my visionary future (laughs) we're we're sharing knowledge as executable programs rather than sharing knowledge by uh them in a journal that a physician then has to read and then has to know how to apply you you have if you will ready ready to use uh you just have to install and and integrate, uh, and, and so I'm excited, and that's that's not going to happen next week, but I really think you know we're the combination of of the improvement in technology and these improvements in policy and regulation uh, heralded entirely new area, new era, uh, similar to you know when the printing press was was created this, you know, invented. Uh, so I'm, I'm incredible, you know, I uh, idealistically optimistic and unrealistically optimistic, but I'm hoping <laughs> for a huge change uh, in in uh, the way that health IT works and and in the quality of care that we can provide to our patients. I, I think this is the start of it.
0: Dave, what's your optimism level? Uh,
2: my My optimism level overall is pretty high uh but it 's tempered a bit by by what I think the time frames are going to be that 's involved i actually I, I think i 'm pretty well aligned with with what Stan was saying there where the the rules primarily are are enablers rather than being sort of directly transformational in themselves and that's wonderful. That's, that's Maybe that, that's, that's perhaps uh, you know, we don't want to get into a political conversation, but that's one of the best forms of, of government intervention is as an enabler that then allows uh, the, the market forces to take over. Um, but along those lines, I think it's going to take time and what we're seeing is akin to the development of of uh, the internet in the 90s which led to an explosion of new functionality in in the following decade that obviously continues now uh, i think that's reasonable to expect that we're what we'll see is a steady evolution over the next 10 even 20 years where We won't necessarily say, wow, do you remember that crazy period between 2021 and 2023 when everything changed? I think more we'll we'll look back in 20 years and all of a sudden look around and realize we we have no idea even where we are from the standpoint of 2020 because things are so fundamentally different.
3: Mm -hmm. I, I would add, if I could, in context of what Dave is saying, the Cures Act was passed in 2016. It took us until 2020 to get a an uh, authored uh, regulation <laughs> information blocking. And uh, again, to his point, the data set that will be granted to patients beginning in November is the same data set you would grant to patients for the next 24 months before it grows to include other data types. So it, it'll it'll be a long, long term. Yep. So maybe as, as Stan says, but the innovation is going to come in during that time around the app market. That would be great.
0: All right, very good. Next question Stan, we're going to start with you. Um what are the infrastructure needs related to interoperability that you are considering to support patients outside the hospital or clinic setting and to capture data from all relevant healthcare related encounters?
1: Uh I'm not an expert in this part. Uh there are a couple of things that i would say and and some of it's directly relevant to Philips and things that uh we're we're doing with Philips. uh a lot of this has to do with you know remote patient monitoring uh and uh collecting you know getting data from devices <clears throat> i mean we're seeing we're seeing that i i have uh i have sleep apnea you know so i my my data's been going to the cloud from my from my CPAP machine now for several years, and you know I can go in and I can see how many apnea spells I'm having, and you know uh, how sleep deprived I am. Not not based on the sleep apnea, but I just don't go to bed soon enough.
0: <laughs>
1: I mean I think it's it, it, it's it's fascinating, and and that's going to evolve and is already evolving, and. and and, and Greg already mentioned it. you know, uh, more of the hospital at home sort of activity so that it becomes smarter and smarter over time uh, so that it's not just a collection of data, but you have smart apps that are looking at the data, uh, w- watching for when the right opportunity to, to intervene or guide the patient, um, interact and train the patient, uh, all of those things. and. Uh, you know, we're, we're looking towards that. And it, I mean, COVID has been a a real motivator for change in this regard. I, there, you know, I, I'm getting old enough that I, 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 I consume more healthcare than I provide. (laughs) 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 And, and, you know, it, it, so I've been, you know, I've been through, you know, several, uh, Either phone or video uh, visits, uh, reg- rather than going into the clinic uh, and doing things, and I have to say it's 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 great because you know unless unless I need somebody to physically examine me, most everything else that happens at a visit you can do by video or by uh, you know uh, just talking uh, about. You know what my symptoms are whether I need a medication change all of that sort of stuff and I don't wait in the waiting room uh, you know it, it's got to be more convenient for the physicians as well because they're they can just be there and and, and have much more control and orchestration of of their day and so uh, yeah those are some things that we're working on uh, you know, working on the remote patient monitoring and, and looking forward to the evolution of that to sort of true, uh, you know, hospital at home or hospice at home or uh, an integration of that and looking at it as a, as a comprehensive whole uh, rather than just, uh, you know, rather than thinking about those things as, as in different databases or different architectures or different uh, things that it that it all needs to be part of of interoperability uh, and the sharing of that information and the opening up of that information so that all care providers can see and access and use and the patients can see and access and use all of the data that's most relevant to their care.
0: Yep, very good
3: Greg. Well I would envision a similar scenario that a patient is having a live AV telehealth visit, their provider can see longitudinal record. Could they also see real-time RPM data to act upon? Could there be an element of analytics plugged into that so that you have a complete remote visit equal to that of an office visit, not only in reimbursement, but but in, in levels of data being seen and cared for? I, I would totally agree with that. Um, as a policy walk, I would say there is some movement there also to get reimbursement around RPM to be bumped up in federally qualified health centers, rural health centers, um, CMS home health agencies. Because, you know, home can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. You know, I'm at home. I just got discharged, but I need I need some monitoring. Oops, I'm in a CMS HHA. I'm in a home health agency and I, and I need another level of care. So can can we equate? you know, the, the technology feed, so to speak, or, or what a remote visit could, can really be. And, and, is it a dashboard approach, things like that, but, but yeah, right, right there with you uh, on where that needs to go. And, and if these regulations and rules are, are in turn empowering patients to get that data and, and have that data on them, maybe so much the better. Cause we, as we, as we go through with, with as Stan says, that sort of app bi- directional app language or, or, or communication.
0: Dave.
2: Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'll, I'll continue to love that. I, I, I agree completely uh, with what Stan and Greg have said. I think, you know, I, I had my first uh, remote visit with a, a physician uh, during the the COVID-19 experience here, uh, and. It works fine you know and it was it was great i didn't have to drive for 45 minutes to get there and 45 minutes back and sit in the waiting room and all those other things and i'm sure as stan said the physician uh had benefits from it as well i think it's going to be really interesting to see how much of the move towards remoteness if you will uh not just in healthcare but in society as a whole ends up surviving uh post-covid i, I, I suspect that we will I mean, obviously, in some ways, we're going to 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 revert significantly, but in others, I think there's there's probably some permanent change here, Uh, and I strongly suspect that the 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 advancements in telemedicine and other just remote offerings in healthcare are are here to stay for sure. Uh, That they uh, moved up maybe to a a a new. curve what part of the curve where they're going to continue to, to grow at a slower rate, but that that uh, uh, big jump that they took is is not going to go away uh, and there's you know there, there's a lot of different options there that that health systems may have. Uh, it, it can probably be a double edged sword, depending on on how you look at it, but from from care quality's perspective, you know we, we aren't directly investing in infrastructure or otherwise uh, supporting these elements directly what we're doing is. Trying to remove barriers, really, uh, fr- from interoperability, kind of like a- how I described the rules. We're trying to be an enabler, so that as you, in in the health system perspective, are implementing your strategies uh, around remote monitoring, telemedicine, perhaps teleradiology, where you you. I keep the physical hardware that performs the tests and and maintain revenue streams in that way, but uh, perhaps don't even have to have radiologists on staff, or maybe you supply the radiologists for others, depending on on, uh, where you fit into the whole picture. Uh, There's all sorts of options there, but they only work. Uh, if the systems involved can actually talk to each other, uh, you know, despite what whatever uh, aspirations folks like epic and Cerner and all may have they're, they're not going to run everything. Uh, and you are going to need to have these different systems talking with one another and, and obviously you know that and that's that's not going to go away in, in teleradiology. so the more that we can make that seamless, the more that we can remove those barriers. The more that we free everyone up to get creative about how they continue to explore these models.
1: You know, I would just, i right. and just respond to that too. I, you know, this is a tangent so you can stop me if you want Anthony. anything, but
0: never, I never EDC, would. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> you know, the whole, the whole thing is, is sort of, uh, caused me and many others to reconsider, you know, when, when do we need to be face to face? When do we need to be together in a group? You know, that, that kind of decision for me is, you know, what, uh, do I need to be face to face in HL7 meetings, in Loink meetings, in, you know, if I participate in the care quality? Uh, when do I need to be there in person? And and I think the information exchange it works just as well. But what what I'm, I'm what I worry about right now is when when I need to create new relationships because so much of what we do really depends on personal relationships and, and trust. And I'm not sure, you know, it, and that actually usually happens not during the formal part of meetings, but, uh, in the hallways or, you know, at cookie break at HL seven or, uh, meals in the evening or, you know, just other kinds of things. And that, that relationship development, I think we're going to have to figure out how we can do that remotely, or maybe we just decide that we still have to do that in person. Um, but it's, but it's, an, it's interesting to think about it and how, how this can change those kinds of things too, you know, national meetings of all kinds, AMIA, HL7, uh, you know, uh, HIMSS, all of those things. Uh, I think it, it'll never be the same. I'm not sure exactly how it'll be in the future, but I can, I think it will never be exactly the same because of this uh,
3: remote experience. Side note, Anthony, if I could, on trust and new relationships, buried, as Stan says, in the many pages of the information blocking regulation is a passage that says if a competitive vendor comes to you wanting your patient data for a legitimate research project, you must work that out, or you could be an information blocker. So a lot to to take in there, too, on, on, as you say, where where we'll start to embrace each other.
0: All right, very good. Uh, We're gonna throw out our uh, audience poll here because I'm gonna get a real kick out of this uh, and I wanna see how people answer and our panelists can answer too. Now the key word here is admirable, (laughs) right? Admirable. The healthcare industry has made admirable progress towards improved interoperability over the last three years. So let's answer that, everybody answer that, admirable progress. And we'll see, uh, we'll get back to that in a moment. Um, got an audience question I wanna get, throw out there. Is the current client server medical records architecture, the correct architecture to develop this high level of interoperability? The high risk of intrusion and ransomware gives CIOs sleepless nights um who wants to jump on that greg I, I see you you look eager greg why don't you jump on oh, see i can't you can't see things you may not be able to have a cookie break which i love how you you cited stan but i can see greg's eager so greg jump on that oh i
3: am eager to hear what stan has to say on this one.
0: oh i like that You're kicking it over
3: <laughs>
0: what do you think uh, stan you you want to so, take this one uh, go ahead I, I missed the first part of the question Okay, is the is the it's technical? It's a technical question. Is the current client-server medical record architecture the correct one to develop this high level of interoperability? The high risk of intrusion and ransomware gives CIOs sleepless nights.
1: Oh boy, is so too technical? Right archi- it, no, I I think it's the right architecture. I what I mean, I don't see an alternative i guess is <laughs> I don't see a workable alternative, so I think we just have to figure out uh how how to you know how to uh how to challenge those problems uh, the and i'm not sure well i i'm I'm taking a little off guard because i don't you know in some ways. It seems to me that um, there there might be a role for government there, uh, you know, providing for the common defense. I mean, going clear back to the Constitution, I'm not sure we've taken electronic uh, injury and damage to heart in the same way that we do yeah the normal military kind of conflicts and things uh i mean you know every every other day we're hearing about somebody who who has been attacked and and whose system is down uh because of a ransomware attack or or because of a disclosure and um you know it seems to me that that there could be a role for the government to do something more about that because I mean, it, it's one thing that, that people are attacked, but then it, it, it really is, uh, alarming that, you know, people are paying the ransoms be, and, and it, and it's because, and they're not doing it. They're doing it because that's the, the fastest way to get back to business and to do what they need to do. Uh, So it's an incredible challenge, but it seems to me that there must – people smarter than me – there must be fundamental ways to do better tracing so that people can't anonymously, uh, you know, uh, attack a system, collect the ransom, and nobody knows who they are or where they are. It seems to me that there has to be uh, better technical solutions than what we've come to so far, And, and we need to invest in it probably on the scale to start thinking about it on the same scale as we do uh, you know physical attacks. Uh because I think they can be just as damaging and just as uh harmful to the to the country as physical intrusions.
3: Dave if you Dave, go yeah.
2: Ahead. yeah, I was just gonna say I I, I mean I, I, I agree with with, with the direction that, the that Stan's suggesting there. I think Expecting that there will not somehow, whether they're you know hosted by by a health system directly or they're hosted somewhere else, uh, for the foreseeable future, there are going to be big pots of data. That are going to be very tempting uh, for uh, for those who you know wish to to take advantage of them criminally. Uh, you know, it just is what it is. Uh, there there are a few things we may be able to do about that. On there, there may be some interesting things that, that could be done to uh, somehow make that information less valuable. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what that might look like, but there that's one angle. And, and certainly, I agree with Stan that that. Developing greater defensive infrastructure, uh, I hesitate to call it defense infrastructure per se, but defensive in- infrastructure, wherever that ends up uh, falling uh, in terms of who's responsible for it, uh, I-, I think is going to end up being being really important. but but to the the basis of the question, you know I, I don't think that that there's a uh, a problem necessarily with a client server architecture or that there's anything that we're going to see in the short term that really is going to, to be better in terms of, uh, of providing a, uh, you know, a, a smaller target perhaps for, for these types of attacks. So it's something that is just part of reality, unfortunately, and, and it probably doesn't make anybody sleep any better at night, <laughs> uh, but, but, but focusing on, on you know, how we can defend ourselves and, and how we can uh, mitigate the risk as much as possible uh, is, is certainly a way to go.
3: Yeah, and I, I certainly wanted your two takes on client-server architecture um, more than mine, and to to really get back to the, the questioner and, and what they're looking for. I would only add that mm-hmm. Congress has had a very hard time with its privacy and security bills um, of, of getting together and getting legislation moved. Would also just note that the information blocking regulation—we talk a lot about it—that. It also carries with it a whole um, new host of certification updates uh, that vendors need to look at also. Some privacy and security aspects there, too. Not saying a, a real answer or a real solution, but agree, Stan, that, that via ONC certification, via Congress, it has to come out of there, I, I think, more than industry innovation, so to speak.
0: All right. So before we get back to our uh, reveal our audience poll, I want to get our panelists to guess at the results. So um, Dave, let's start with you. What percentage agree with this statement? I'm going to say 55% agree. 55, Greg? 35. 35, Stan?
1: Oh, i split the difference. I'll say 45.
0: 45. Well, splitting the difference makes a lot of sense because the answer is 46%. Well done, Stan. Well done. As
3: always.
0: Very, nice. very excellent. Excellent. Excellent job. All right. <laughs> now we're going to do our Ask a Co-panelist. Greg, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask one or both of your co-panelists a question.
3: Um i guess um dr huff we we haven't talked about it yet in this um setting, but if you wouldn't mind giving us an overview of Logica health and, and the real question is how can we help that effort get it out in the world or or help you get logica health uh, in front of o n c well what have you yeah
1: no uh so <clears throat> Uh, for those who don't know, Logica Health is a, is a not-for-profit uh, charitable organization that was formed back in uh, 2013, 2014. Uh, Intermountain Healthcare from, uh, worked with the VA and with Louisiana State uh, University Health. Uh, and, and the purpose is to to sort of get to the vision that that I described a little earlier, uh, 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 an open ecosystem, standards-based interoperable ecosystem uh, where we can share applications and services um, in a a truly open market. Uh, And the the short answer is you can join Logica. And (laughs) we would love that. Logica, you know, is, is focused on on several different areas. One is is how do we set the platform up so that we have that the actual infrastructure uh, to to do the sharing. Another part is specializing beyond uh, uh, the USCDI. The USCDI is is incredibly valuable and and useful. It doesn't take you to the level of semantic interoperability. And, and so logic is spending a lot of time saying, uh, you know, this is sort of exactly how you represent data in, in fire with the appropriate loint codes and units of measure and, and other things. And, uh, and so we're doing a lot there. I logic is trying to think how we can do things more at scale. Uh, you know, sort of true interoperability is one one out analogy. You know, is is being the first person with a phone. Uh, you, you've got nobody to call. We have you have to you have to create a community uh, before there's value there, and so it's it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing. And uh, and so Intermountain is working. There's another. There's another group called Graphite that's being led by Reese Robinson from Presbyterian Health, uh, and and working with Intermountain and Presbyterian, uh, trying to look at ways that we could scale this and make it real. Uh, and and so I'm excited about that opportunity. I think I think in terms of what we want to do, uh, our vision hasn't changed. But what we do need to do is we need to get more people. In town with a phone, so that there's more value to interoperability at a, you know, at a practical level. Uh, and again, I can't say how much I can't overstate. I think the eventual value that will have to uh, to patients and to healthcare and and to uh, public health, etc.
3: I'll ask so Dave joined. if you don't mind. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, on our list, if you, if you don't mind, Anthony, I'll ask Dave if um, patient matching do we need a do we need a unique patient identifier? Is patient matching still? I know it's a it's just a <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, oh, sorry. So go ahead, go ahead, Greg. Networks and carry quality. Commonwealth, are collaborating. they doing so much, developing Fire. Is patient matching still just the the fly in the So can Fire overcome that? It, uh, it, it it's a real issue.
2: You know, we we I, I've used an analogy before that we're we're building this incredible you know Ferrari like automobile on a rusty grocery cart chassis uh, because it's all based on on this uh, demographics based patient matching which. You could pour all kinds of of effort and energy into it, and you're only after a certain point going to be able to improve it incrementally. Um, so I, I do think that we need something fundamentally different. Um, a a unique healthcare ID would arguably over time, uh, once it was fully adopted, uh, go a long way towards solving that problem. I think there are there are political and cultural barriers there that that just probably make it unrealistic. Whereas uh, instead of focusing on an ID number, uh, focusing instead on some sort of healthcare identity that is is you know probably tied to to your phone uh, may not get universally to everyone in the population, but gets gets a long way there, and over time does become more universal. Uh, as even uh, the oldest among us have uh, have smartphones and these types of, of ability to 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 carry a a digital presence with us, if you will, and, and identify us. And I think there there it'll be interesting to see what happens with COVID actually towards spurring on the adoption of, of such a voluntary solution. If you are required to quote show your papers uh relative to COVID status for example at some point whether that's to to even get into your your job site or to to get into uh the uh the the concert that you want to go to or an nfl game or, or whatever the case may be get into a museum uh any place that's out in the public where you you may need to at some point uh prove that you're safe uh, offers an opportunity uh, for for this type of of uh, uh, identity to be developed, and obviously we can look at that and and see it as a negative and, and, and there are ways that it, it could become a negative. Uh, but there are other ways where, if that's channeled correctly, uh, and, and there's collaboration within the health IT world to to really take advantage of that and leverage the fact that these sorts of capabilities are starting to exist, and also help help them evolve in in rational ways, uh, I, I think you could see uh, some some voluntarily identified healthcare identity uh, starting to be established and and be used in the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I just. Comment on that, if I could. I I couldn't agree more with 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 many of the things you said there. I just uh, emphasize a couple of things. One is, um, you know, ONC has been working. Uh, you know, one of their fast that fire fast is like fire acceleration implementation. So anyway, can't remember what fast stands for, but what it's about is trying to get fire implemented more quickly. And they've and a, one aspect of that was about patient identification. And I, you know, I learned some things and some things that, that uh, make a lot of sense to me, you know, we're not healthcare isn't, shouldn't do this alone. Uh, it, and it And to a great extent, you know, the, the Visa card, MasterCard, you know, discover card, they're in the business of identifying people and, for, for purposes of financial transactions. And there are probably things that we can learn there that probably the biggest thing I would, I would say is, is, is what you mentioned, Dave, which is that the, the last mile kind of problem is not technical. Uh, It is societal and policy and uh, bias and uh, other things you know, the people, that we have the most trouble identifying aren't the people who have health insurance, aren't the people who have Medicare and Medicaid. Uh we we identify those at almost near hundred percent accuracy. We don't identify children, <laughs> you know, newborns and, and early age that, you know, where their you know, their record at Intermountain starts out as, you know, uh baby boy Mary Robinson, you know, or something like that. Uh, and, and then the name transitions to a real name, uh, and then the people who are undocumented uh, aliens, uh, people who have some kind of problem with the law. So the you know the people that that cause us to continue to have you know between a five and fifteen percent error rate on in identifying people are people who 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 are either children or people who don't really want to be identified because they're in fear of the social or criminal or deportation implications of of being identified. And somehow we have to think about that, you know, those political and social issues related to identity as much as we think about the technical uh, reliability of identity.
0: Greg, uh, I'm going to give you an opportunity for a final thought. Uh, you can address anything you want. I'm thinking of the, the Cures Act and the deadlines, but uh, you're a policy wonk, right? So any, anything you want to tell people that they they may something on the fine print they may have
3: missed? Uh, yeah, I will go back to the information blocking regulation because, again, you're looking at a November 2nd timeline, to begin offering this USCDI identify the USCDI identify these data elements and run the exercise let's compile them let's put them together is it all in our EHR do we have to query out to an HIE how do we even get it and pull it together and then look toward you know if we're going to stand up our own fire server i think that's a pretty big heft you know that health systems don't have to use their vendor's fire app they can set up their own fire server but go through the exercise of putting together the USCDI and, and, and just compile it and go through that exercise ahead of time. See if you have to query out. Do you have to query Dave Castle that, that, to find a piece of where this data went? <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. Very good. Um, that's about all we had time to, for today. We're, we do have a post-event survey um, that should open when you close your, your Zoom window. Um, The chat is, it's also, the URL has also just been sent out in the chat box, so it's a quick four-question survey. If you take a minute and answer that, we'd appreciate it. Regarding continuing education, you could use the final slide in this deck for your certificate. You'll get an email when the, the archive of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can reach out to Nancy from our team and you could go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. With that, as a tremendous conversation today, I wanna very much thank uh, Dr. Stanhoff who mentioned both the constitution and cookie breaks. And that hasn't happened in a long time. (laughs) I wanna thank Dave Castle and Greg Fulton. And I wanna thank Phillips very much for sponsoring this event and you our attendees. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony. (laughs)